is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Brian Ping in for Charles Feldman. Could we soon see more water restrictions? The results of a new survey from the California Department of Water Resources finds many agencies here in Southern California could be looking at shortages because of the drought. There's concern that current conservation measures and voluntary reductions just might not be enough. We will go in-depth. Palm Springs is being asked to right a major wrong from decades ago regarding the evictions of hundreds of black and Mexican families. We'll look into what exactly the families are asking for. San Francisco police could soon deploy so-called killer robots. We'll get into how they actually work and when they would be used. There are some new findings out offering hope, some new hope and promise when it comes to an experimental drug being used to treat Alzheimer's disease. Results from a new survey could have businesses as well rethinking the traditional five-day work week. How interesting is that? We'll tell you mm-hmm. what this survey has found. Well, we start with water and potential shortages, one of the biggest problems facing California. With us is David Peterson, General Manager of the Las Virgenes Municipal Water District, which serves Calabasas, Hidden Hills, and surrounding areas. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. Now, when we're talking about a water shortage and people think about what that's going to mean for them and their homes, does that mean turn the tap and nothing comes out or what? Not quite that bad, but we're seeing drought conditions really unlike what we have experienced in the past here in California. And we it's easy to become accustomed to drought, um, and California is no uh, stranger to drought. But what we're facing right now is a drought emergency. And what's really different about an emergency is we're asking um, customers across the state to really take actions that they are not accustomed to. And that means doing things like letting their, letting their lawn die. Uh, in my district, um, in Las Virgenes Municipal Water District, we've been in a state of local emergency because of water shortage for almost a year now. If you drive through our area, you'll see that most lawns have uh, turned brown and died. And so we're really talking about changing the way people look at water and how they use water and making some tough choices. Well, tell me, could we see more mandated water restrictions or would they be more of the voluntary type? Well, we have mandated water restrictions right now. So we are in a one day a week watering um, and we have been since June 1st. Um, And the possibility is there for more severe water restrictions. What really uh, remains to be seen is how this water year uh, unfolds. And the water year begins on October 1st. Um, We're just starting to enter the time of year in December, January, February, where we we would typically get the most rain and snow. And so we're hopeful, but we're also preparing and planning for a fourth dry year. And uh, we'll be prepared to take the actions that we need to. And those could mean, uh, those actions could mean tougher restrictions. Well, yeah, David, I was going to get to that. As you mentioned, we do have mandated water restrictions in place on certain days that you can, you can use water for outdoor watering and and the like. But I guess what I'm wondering, and my original question was, would, could we expect stricter mandated water restrictions? How about that? We could, we might be there. And you know, the, the, the toughest restriction is going to be an altogether ban on outdoor watering. It's not something we've ever seen. Um, or done, but it's very much on the table. And it's just a reflection of the conditions that we're facing in California and how severe it is. Um, So yes, it is on the table. Uh, We are together with our wholesale water provider, the Metropolitan Water District. We are watching conditions, uh, both demand and supply side uh, on a weekly basis and making decisions in near real time about um, what is needed. 
Well, it sounds like, from what you said, a lot of people are letting their lawns go brown and die. A lot of people are getting the message, and they are, at the very least, playing along. They are, absolutely. And I'll just say, you know, in our district and throughout Southern California, we have seen people respond. And, you know, we have seen this before. Uh, the people of California step up, uh, the people of the Las Virgenes Municipal Water District, especially, we've seen them save since June 1st between 35 and 40 percent as compared to 2020. So they're making um, really huge numbers in terms of conservation. They're making uh, those difficult choices that I that I mentioned. And then they're trying to preserve things like trees um, and then trying to you know maintain their indoor water use, which is you know really essential for your quality of life. When it comes to an emergency like this, is there coordination between your district and others here in Southern California? There absolutely is. And I would say it's, you know, on a on a daily and weekly basis. We are all interconnected. Our water systems are interconnected. The decisions and the actions that we take at my water district affect our neighbors and their neighbors' neighbors and so on, even beyond California into Arizona and Nevada um, when you start to think about the Colorado River. So we really are a, a system and a network, and we need to work together to conserve water. At this point, are you optimistic or, or pessimistic? I'm naturally optimistic just because there's uh, not the, the alternative is not a, a good one. But, you know, with that, I will say we're preparing for um, what would be a fourth dry year. And so we have to do that. Uh, we do expect there will be an announcement by the Department of Water Resources in the coming days on the initial uh, state water project allocation, and we're expecting it to be low, and we're preparing to respond accordingly. All right. David, thank you again. That's David Peterson, General Manager of the Las Virgenes Municipal Water District, which serves Calabasas, Hidden Hills, and surrounding areas. Right now, though, back in the 1950s and 60s, Palm Springs forced hundreds of black and Mexican families out of their homes in a downtown neighborhood. Those homes were then destroyed and burned down by the city. Palm Springs apologized last year, but now those families say that's not enough. They just filed an amended claim saying the city caused up to $2 billion in harm. With us is attorney Ariva Martin representing the families and Pearl Devers, who was forced out of her home at the time, along with her family. Uh, Ms. Martin, there's a complicated history there. It has to go back to the, the railroads and the allotting of land for Indian reservations and how Palm Springs cut it off from the grid and many parts of the city fell into disrepair. Complicated history here, but focusing on the bottom line, people were forced out of their homes and not properly compensated, and that's what you are, the the issue that you are bringing to light, you know, regardless of the circumstances that uh, that led to it. Absolutely. You're correct, Brian. It is a complicated history, but what happened to the Section 14 families, their survivors and descendants, is pretty straightforward. It's all documented in the Attorney General's report after an investigation was conducted by the Attorney General. And what the Attorney General documented is that the city engaged in what they called a city-engineered holocaust. Rather than use the legal process, rather than uh, pay families to relocate, provide financial assistance, they simply used intimidation. They used bulldozers to bulldoze houses, and then they set them on fire. So families were left without recourse. They couldn't call the fire department because it was the city's fire department actually engaging in the conduct. So what the city did, you're right, they did make an apology 14 months ago, and now we're asking them to go further than an apology. An apology is an acknowledgement. Now we're asking for accountability. And 
by all indication, the city wants to do the right thing to make these rights wrong, uh, to right the wrongs. Uh, so now it's just a question of how quickly we can get that done and what that looks like. Okay, let's go back to the 1950s and 60s and bring Pearl, Pearl Devers, into this conversation. Pearl, you were forced out of your home along with your family at the time. Uh, paint a picture for us. Tell us about that time. Tell us about what you went through. Yes, I was. I was uh, born and raised there in Palm Springs in the uh, uh, at the time, which was the Desert Hospital. My father, a skilled laborer, carpenter, helped build that hospital. My father built our home in Section 14. Um, I lived in that home with my with four other siblings. It was a wonderful community surrounded by loving families who cared for each other. Um, uh, it didn't matter if you were Black, Mexican, uh, and other minorities. We all got along. And, and still are lifelong friends to this very day. So living there in Section 14 as a child, life was great. Uh, we felt loved and protected. It was a safe haven. It was fun for us. My mom worked as a maid for celebrities such as Lucille Ball, uh, Amelia Earhart family, and they were just hardworking uh, citizens doing what uh, parents and, and loving, um, nurturing parents do. They were providing for us when uh, all of a sudden, we ended up having to move. As a child, I wasn't um, told what was happening. I just knew that we were offended and that we uh, ended up leaving the, our safe haven, the home that my father provided for um, me and my and my siblings. And um, when we left, we left my father behind. He was going to uh, I was later told, stick it out. He was not going to be forced out. And I don't know how that uh, eventually turned out, but um, um, it was it was a great place to live. And the the hardest part was leaving my father behind. I did not even realize that when I left my father, that we that my father, and my mother were literally also splitting up. Uh, my father uh, had began to drink. He succumbed to alcoholic alcoholism and well, uh, never recovered uh, in, in despite the fact that he was a hardworking family uh, community leader yeah. also started, you know, there, uh, the NAACP yeah. in Palm Springs. So Pearl, it was, if I, if, it was if, yeah, I can, it sounds devastating, Pearl. And, and tell me where did, where was your family minus your father forced to move to and, and what was like life like then? For, my mother and my two uh, uh, brothers who moved, we literally were uh, moved to five various locations in and around Section 14, just basically um, running from burning homes. There were, as a child, I recall the, 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 higher, the houses being on fire. But again, I really didn't know what was going on. Um, we lived just trying to keep a roof over our head. My mother um, was just a hardworking uh, mother doing what any mother would do, trying to provide for the children. My father, I was told that um, his aunt came, picked him up and had found a place for him to, to live. And I just remembered from then on, wherever I had to go see my dad, um, it was just really mostly devastating for me to see what he had become because he was not able to go out and get a loan to move our house due to redlining. So that was it was it was pretty devastating. 
Arriva, according to the claim that we're seeing here, you allege the city of Palm Springs caused up to $2 billion in harm. Are we talking mid-20th century money here? Because as we all know, property values in places like Palm Springs that are rather wealthy, they, they have soared. So, I mean, it's even, it's difficult to even put a dollar amount on this. And, and how does that, how do you, how do they even make it right in that regard? Yeah, uh, great questions. First of all, what we did was a preliminary harm uh, assessment using a, a noted economist, Dr. Julianne Malvo, who is also a reparations expert. Uh, she's uh, studied reparations. She's been involved in reparations movements for the last couple of decades. So she went out to the city. She did a survey of the city. She did a survey of the value of homes today. She looked at the replacement costs and she looked at the economic harm done to these families beyond the homes and the belongings, because it's important to note that not only did the city burned the homes down. They burned the belongings of many of these residents while the belongings were inside the home. So Dr. Malvo did an assessment uh, trying to uh, put a number on what the value of the losses are, the total losses to these families. And it is complicated. It's very difficult to do because trying to assess loss of opportunities, loss of jobs, uh, loss of uh, you know generational wealth. These are all things that are a result of being upended in the way that these families were. There were churches, there were businesses, there were uh, other enterprises on Section 14, a boarding house. And if you think back to the Bruce's Beach uh, case in Los Angeles, Manhattan Beach, one of the things that we heard often was that the Bruce's family could be today's Hilton's, could be the Marriott's of today. And we don't know what would have become of those businesses and those other enterprises had they not been burned out by the city of Palm Springs. Ms. Martin, uh, thank you so much for for speaking with us. That is uh, attorney Ariva Martin representing the families involved in Pearl Devers, who was forced out of her home at the time along with her family. We should also point out that Palm Springs has said in a statement that it's working to fix what happened at the time. It says it has an obligation to investigate history as it develops remedial programs that are fair to everyone. Coming up, new data is out on a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And the four-day work week could be much more productive than what your boss might think. We'll explain. Yeah, right now, those supervisors up in San Francisco, they have voted to give the city of San Francisco, their police department, the power to use what are being called killer robots. Now, these are remote control robots that can be used in emergency situations. Now, police say they won't have guns, but could be equipped with explosives. They would only be used, they say, after other tactics have failed. Sergeant Betsy Ratner-Smith is a retired police officer. She also trained law enforcement officers and is currently the spokesperson for the National Police Association. She joins us now to talk more about this. Uh, Sergeant, thank you. First of all, how do these robots work exactly? So what they are, they're not armed. And I want people to know we've had these robots in place since the very early 80s. This is nothing new. Um, so what they are is they're just basically sort of a very high tech remote control car, if you will. Think about what you gave your kid for Christmas, maybe a few years ago. And they're equipped with a camera. They're equipped with, you know, they can carry things. Sometimes they can hold things. And we have been using them for 40 years to do things like peek around a corner that might not be safe for an officer to look around. We use them to deliver things to maybe a barricaded subject, whether it's food or water or a telephone, something like that. Um, They're just an extra layer of safety for a police officer. They can do things that might be extremely dangerous 
for a human or even a canine to do. They can send things, they can see things, they can do things that we may not be able to safely do. Right. And anytime that we in the news cover a moment like a suspicious package, something like that, as you mentioned, these you know little rovers, these little remote control cars can be used to you know sniff that out, make things safe. But we're talking about using these devices to kill. What would be a scenario in which one of these devices were employed to kill somebody legally under this context? Well, we had this in Dallas, Texas, uh, I believe it was in 2016, where we had a uh, really a, t- a Black Lives Matter terrorist who went on a rampage and killed multiple police officers in Dallas, Texas. And the officers there were forced to utilize a robot to take explosives to that subject and basically blow him and the robot up. They had to do that because he had himself wired with explosives. He had a lot of military experience and it would have been deadly, i.e. it would have been suicidal for officers to approach him and try to arrest him or even engage him. So that's what happened with the robot. But that's an extreme situation. And again, are you know, you keep seeing this this B-roll on television of these robots, uh, you know, armored with some sort of uh, high capacity firearm. That is not what we're talking about. Well, Sergeant, you, you say they've been around for a long time, but there are many people expressing concern. Why do you think there is such pushback? Is it simply because of the growing mistrust we're seeing these days when it comes to law enforcement? Well, yes, I don't think this was presented well by, um, frankly, by the media and also by the San Francisco City Council, which was just doing what their ordinance requires. Here's how this all got kind of out of hand. The San Francisco City Council has an ordinance that says if they're going to bring in any sort of militarized equipment or make big changes in the police department, then they have to have a meeting and the people get to speak. The public gets to come and weigh in. Uh, And I think that's appropriate because after all, we're the police department of the people. Um, But politicians, people in the media, activists, they seized this opportunity to say, oh my gosh, the police are going to come murder us with robots. It's, It's a lie, first of all. It's childish, and frankly, it's irresponsible. All right. Sergeant, thank you again. That's Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith, retired police officer. She's also uh, trained law enforcement officers and is currently the spokesperson for the National Police Association. I think they might need better marketing. Killer robots scares yeah. a lot of people. Just the term. You, you, yeah. you, you hit the nail on the head. Killer robots just, just doesn't work from a marketing standpoint. Well, I mean, because, you know, we've covered these stories, right, where they, they, they send a little uh, you know, device in if there's something oh, sure. that, like a, like a yep. dangerous, uh, yep. suspicious item, something like mm-hmm. that. And then I, I guess this is – and these robots don't have AI either. We should right. – <laughs> they're, they're right. going to go rogue and – yeah, but, uh, yeah, a little, little scary, little, the, the, the term anyway. Yeah. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens. I'm Brian Ping, and today for Charles Feldman. The latest results involving an experimental drug have some very promising findings when it comes to treating Alzheimer's disease. Phase 3 trial data shows leconamab. After 18 months, year and a half, associated with more clearance of 
amyloid and less cognitive decline. While the findings offer hope, they also raise safety concerns because of the drug's association with some serious adverse effects. Susan Howland is program director of the Alzheimer's Association California Southland chapter, and Tony Gonzalez is an Alzheimer's Association national early stage advisor. He was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment at the age of 47 last year. Uh, Susan, let's start with you. Of course, amyloid, that's the plaque. When people talk about Alzheimer's, it's the plaque that builds up and that uh, disturbs uh, brain function. And quite simply, this drug aims to counter that plaque and keep it from clotting, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, the hallmark signs of Alzheimer's disease are those plaques, as you mentioned, and tangles which occur inside the brain. So lecanemab reduces the amount of that amyloid plaque in the brain. And with the reduction of that plaque, you see a slowing in cognitive decline, as well as some of our activities of daily living. So really meaningful change in somebody's day-to-day life. Uh, Tony, let's get to you. Tony Gonzalez, you were diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment at the age of 47. That was last year. You're with the Alzheimer's Association uh, as an, an early stage advisor. Tell me just how much of a breakthrough could this possibly be for people like yourself? Sure. Thanks, guys, for having me here today. Uh, This is huge news for me. Uh, Somebody like me, what that brain fog is like, um, you know, it's kind of funny. The best thing I can describe it is we've all kind of had a hangover. Well, imagine a hangover that lasts all day long that also makes you cold, that can make you shaky. Uh, That's the sundowners that kicks in in the afternoon. All these things. It's not just about memory. Um, but at the end of the day, what this means is the capacity that I'm at now, and I'm in mild cognitive impairment, if we can get the medicines into us early and help us early, that means we're going to have more time with our families, more time to be more productive and do things in our communities. So this is great news. So you uh, were diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. Now, is this necessarily tied to Alzheimer's? Is this because you may have some of these uh, plaques that are that could be targeted and treated by this drug? That's such a great question. So it all falls under the umbrella term or the umbrella name of dementia. Under dementia, there are several, several uh, uh, diseases that fall under that. Parkinson's is one of them. Alzheimer's is one of them. Lewy bodies, which we all remember from Robin Williams, that's one of them as well. And there's many, many more. So the process of finding out what is going on with you really is a long, tedious process that you and your family or your caregivers, the people that work and and, and live with you, you know, they start to see changes. They start to start to see that, hey, this guy used to be able to do this and he can't do that. For me, I I was a banker for a while and, and had several branches. And now I have a first grade level math and I miss spreadsheets, if you can believe that or not. But I do. I miss a good spreadsheet. So it affects us all differently. It's 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 quite a thing. Susan, what steps must still be taken before lecanemab becomes a major treatment that we could all depend upon? So it has not actually been FDA approved yet. Um, there are expected to be some FDA approvals probably early next year. Uh, so once it is, it, from the Alzheimer's Association standpoint, most of the data around safety and efficacy look very positive. And it seems as though there's a robust profile of data for the FDA to review in order to make a decision. So we'll wait for their FDA approval announcement. And there are believed to be uh, some uh, rather serious side effects here, possible uh, bleeding, uh, things like it, it kind of sounds on its base like it, it acts like a blood thinner, except it's a plaque thinner. And that can carry the risk of, you know, there, there could be some excess bleeding there, which could be hard to control. 
You know, there, there, some individuals do experience that, you know, brain swelling as well as brain bleeds. Most were reported to be somewhat manageable as well. I think it's also important to remember that most treatments and most medications do have side effects. And that's where it's really important for individuals to work with their physician and with their family to really weigh pros and cons, risks and benefits to come up with the right treatment plan for themselves and their family. All right. Susan and Tony, both thank you so much for joining us today. That's Susan Howland, Program Director of the Alzheimer's Association, California Southland Chapter. And Tony Gonzalez, uh, he was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairments, uh, impairment uh, at 47 last year. He is an Alzheimer's Association National Early Stage Advisor. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Brian Ping. I'm Chris Seedens. If you were given the option of working just four days a week instead of... I'll take it. Okay, yeah, all right. (laughs) Count me in. (laughs) Yeah, please, take a moment. Think about it, Chris. It'd be safe for us to assume you would take the four-day work week as uh, Chris would, but would your company be on board with that plan? Let me think about it. Okay, I thought about it. I'll take (laughs) it. Um, Now, if that company uh, tried, it just might work. A a trial is going on right now. It's a trial that uh, involves 33 companies in the United States and Ireland. It has them switching to a four-day work week. He, yeah. Uh, the results after six months show just about every worker and company loved it. Surprise. Surprise. The companies responding to the survey rated their overall experience nine out of ten. I'm liking this based on productivity and performance. With us now to talk more about this is John Leland. He's chief strategy officer for Kickstarter. That's a crowdfunding site, which is a part of the trial. John, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this trial and how things have worked out for your company. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we adopted a four-day work week at the beginning of April, so we're, I guess, about eight months into it, and it's been really successful. I mean, our employees are obviously very happy, as you can imagine, but productivity is up. Our employees are more re- better rested. They're more focused. They're more engaged. We retain employees better, and we hire faster. Uh, so it's been a, a true win-win for both the company and for all of the people that work at the company, including D- myself, to be honest. Now, does this also mean fewer hours of the week, or are they just uh, you know condensing, uh, working more hours per those four days? Definitely not condensing. We are we are trying to cut down on the number of working hours in the week. Okay, so uh, like a thirty, if you're working forty hours, 30, now you'd be working thirty-two. Yeah, thirty-two wow. hours. Okay, that's right. Uh, so I, I'm get, thinking that work, more done. yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that work from home is leading to this kind of uh, shift in the greater mentality here. A lot more people are accepting the notion of, well, if I'm going to be home a couple days a week anyway, I can work on my time. I can get things mm-hmm. done, be more productive, take things at my pace. And I found that okay, I take a Friday off or a Monday off, and I didn't lose any ground. In fact, I'm, I'm maybe even more present and productive in my job. Is that kind of what we're seeing here? Absolutely. I mean, I think the pandemic in particular shattered the illusion of performance of work, like work as theater. And when you give people back time in the week, it allows them to be a lot more flexible with how they how they structure their time for work so that they can rest when they need to. They can like jump in and if they're feeling, you know, focused and motivated, they can they can do those hours then. And it really frees people up to get away from work as just something that's that's trying to take up to the hours in your day, even if you aren't productive in them. We really want people when they're on the clock to be getting the job done and, and give them as much time as possible back 
when they aren't working. Yeah, work is theater. I love that term because I mean, how much? <laughs> how much um, yeah, some people, not not everybody, but some people. How many people are just punching a time clock and then not really doing actual work don't, to fill in those eight hours? Don't look at me when you're saying. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I slipped there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you if you can have work, employees like that who are just bad employees, but I think everyone is familiar with employees sort of getting burnt out, getting tired, and then when they do that, they start you know slacking off here and there on their workday and starting to like you know surf Facebook or Instagram or Twitter as it collapses. And uh, you know, really, what we want to do is actually just kind of strip out all that stuff and make sure that people are are better rested, are really focused when they are working. And if they aren't going to be productive, we want to give them back that time so they aren't just wasting time at work. That's not productive for anyone. Okay. And just in case our bosses are listening, I was kidding. Yeah. Brian was not looking at me when, when he said that. <laughs> hey, John, let me uh, let me take the the other side of the, this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, any downsides, any any people within your company who uh, who didn't like it? <laughs> no one. I haven't heard a single complaint uh on this one any <laughs> concern any, okay uh n- no complaints from the employees which is no, understandable no no complaint from our board no, no complaint from management from no. Our leadership yeah no one it's it's it takes intention it's not it doesn't it's not just as simple as lopping off a day it does take sort of focus and dedication and, and collaboration between leadership and employees to make it work but once you do, it's it's great. And it took us a few months to really get into the swing of things. And now we're a stronger and better company for it. I like it does that. require leadership to be better. But, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, as a leader in the organization, I like that. It requires me, a lot, me to be a lot more focused, clear, and directed with our employees about what we need to get out of them. Uh, because sort of the... The consequences of bad leadership are we do see kind of amplified in a four-day work week. All right. John, thank you. Again, that's John Leland. He's Chief Strategy Officer for Kickstarter, a crowdfunding site, which was a part of this four-day work week trial. Yeah. Kind, and, kind of like it. And, Chris, I know that you, you, you put in a solid eight hours, but you might want to close that Instagram window. That's kind of giving you away there. <laughs> you liar, you. That'll, <laughs> that'll do it for In-Depth today, along with the Brian. I'm Chris. Uh, thanks so much for listening. We're back again tomorrow.